0: Hello, and welcome to Downturn Survival Guide, the new podcast mini-series brought to you by Sifted and EQT Ventures. I'm Anissa Osman-Brisson, Startup Life reporter at Sifted, and this week I'm joined by Zina Qureshi, who is the co-founder and CEO of AI-powered speech software company, Synantic, which was acquired by Spotify last year. And Gautam Nadella will be joining us. He is the operating partner at EQT Ventures and he supported Synantic through its acquisition. This is the third and final episode in our series exploring some of what European startups need to know about operating in a downturn. This week, we're looking at the anatomy of the mergers and acquisition process. Tech startup M&As have picked up in the downturn. In fact, January this year was actually a record month for European startup M&As, with a total of 378 deals reported, according to Sifted Intelligence Analysis and Deal Room. Gautam, welcome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Could you tell us, what is an M&A?
1: Sure. So first of all, thank you, Anisa, for having me on today on such an interesting topic. On the first question, I'd always view acquisitions through two lenses, the buyer and the seller. Since each group has been impacted by the market recently in different ways, I'm not surprised that the volume of acquisitions is picked up. Uh, having been on both sides of many transactions, I can easily say there is no single definition of M&A that incorporates all acquisitions. There are, however, some broad buckets that most deals fall into, which I want to get into. First is what I would call a platform acquisition. These kinds of deals involve the combination of two companies, complete with pop products and services, employees, customer contracts, IP, the whole package. While bits and pieces can get discarded, sold off or shut down during integration, generally most of the sellers is folded into the buyer. These tend to be good deals for the seller as most things are preserved, at least in tech deals. While these deals are increasingly rare these days though, given buyers have more leverage, they can still happen and be a great deal for all sides. Next on the list is what I'd call product, or bolt-on acquisitions. The main difference here is that there are parts of the seller that can be downsized, repurposed, or just shut down. While this could unfortunately include jobs, it could also include winding down product lines, existing certain markets, and at least a very big reorg. These kind of deals are much more common when the size difference between the acquirer and the target is large, or when there's quite a bit of overlap already between the two businesses. The final bucket of deals in my mind goes by many names, asset purchase, tech and talent, aqua hire IP sale, you know, so on. In all cases, though, the nature of the acquisition is fairly targeted and the deal sizes are usually small. But the goal of these deals is almost always top to optimize value around at least one of three key areas, employees, product and IP, or customer relationships. Companies that sell in this kind of deal tend to have less options and leverage than those in the first two buckets, but that doesn't mean they're bad deals.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about the downturn and the market state right now. Are any of these buckets more popular because of the situation we're in? What are you kind of seeing?
1: So, on the market itself, the market has changed not only valuation expectations and the options smaller firms have on many fronts, but it's importantly changed the math for buyers and sellers when it comes to either looking for targets or considering a sale. While there was a lull in 22 when both the number of deals and total acquisition dollars were down, We are seeing a rebound now on both fronts, definitely in the number of deals. Of course, the total amount spent today can't compare to 21, as few metrics can. However, a number of dynamics are making deals easier than before. First is that valuations are, you know, admittedly down across the board. This is true for all companies, uh, but particularly true for smaller companies, and even more so for those that were previously high growth and, and losing money. Uh, The net effect, though, is that not only are buyers finding it easier to justify the math relative to their own valuations, but using large cash balances can be much easier, which is actually not a good thing for sellers. For example, I expect many large and slow-growing tech companies to start making larger acquisitions, just as they did to a greater degree a few years after the dot-com bust in 2008. If nothing else, they'll find it easier to compete and pay for smaller deals now. The other major dynamic is that companies open to selling just do not have the same set of options as they had before. VCs have become more conservative, funding new rounds. Banks are going through their own turmoil right now. And finally, leaders in the market that were previously potential buyers, like larger unicorns and decacorns, have to increasingly conserve cash and have their own depressed valuations to deal with. With all that, a set of companies are now open to selling. Some would like to sell, given the needs of their investors' employees. And others must sell, given their shrinking bank accounts and low prospects of turning the business around.
0: I think that's really great context. And if you read some of the stuff we're reporting on at Sifted, it really reflects what we are seeing and what the European market is doing. Let's bring in a founder right now to discuss this in a bit more detail. Zina, your startup, Synantic, was acquired by Spotify last year. Can you tell us a little bit more about what Synantic does? So Synantic creates
2: the world's most expressive and realistic AI voice software. So what we used to do is on one side, we worked with actors. We'd create AI versions of themselves, so synthesized voice. And then anytime their voice was used, they'd get a profit share. And on the other side, we would license this AI voice software out to different gaming studios, entertainment studios,
0: businesses. So I want to talk about the M&A process in a little bit more detail. Could you initially walk us through maybe an overview of the process itself. How does it start? How does it kind of work? What was that for you?
2: I guess we spoke to corp dev a few times during our time as Synantic. And most of the time, corporate development um, from different companies and different industries will pop their head in. They They keep an eye on the market and what's happening and what the latest startups are doing. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's going anywhere. I guess when Synantic was approached last year by Spotify, we didn't actually think we were going to sell. We were very much at seed going to Series A. We had great traction. And when the process came up, it was really funny because we didn't have a board. So it was just me and my co-founder. And we were, I guess, navigating this uh, as best as we can in a short amount of time, because it was like either we go for the funding round and sign that term sheet, or we go forward with this other term sheet that is Spotify. So, I think we had a bit of a, a different M and A process than most
0: people, which takes like three to
2: six months minimum.
0: Can you talk a little bit about why it happened so quickly?
2: Yeah. So for us, I guess like we were we didn't want to say no to the Series A offer because we really were interested in going forward, but then when I guess when the market had changed last year, it makes founders like me very paranoid. Uh, you want to make sure that things are super safe in this environment. And so we asked for things to go a lot faster because we knew if we did a Series A, um, funding rounds can close within four weeks, and that's pretty much a done deal, that's standard process, especially if you're raising from the U.S. doing an equity round, whereas like a three- to six-month process for M&A We were told by our lawyers that M&A processes fall apart all the time. So that was a big risk.
0: How did you then tell your investors that, hey, actually, we're going forward with this acquisition deal. We're not actually going to raise more money. And what did they think about that process?
2: Yeah, I think our investors were actually pretty happy because they, when we got all the term sheets on the table, they... All of them looked good. So they were they were pretty pleased. And we've been very lucky with the investors that we have. So I, I remember speaking to Gotham as well when the time happened with EQT. And EQT was very um, supportive of founders. Um, and so they were like, you know, what do you guys want to do? And for us, it just made more sense to join the largest audio platform in the world. And we'd already been working with Spotify a little bit beforehand. But it just seemed like a aligned vision and made sense for investors as well.
0: And what about your team? How did you communicate the acquisition to them?
2: Yeah, that was the hardest part, actually, because when you go into a term sheet, like when it's a funding round, you tell everybody you're fundraising on the team, and the team knows you're fundraising. But with an acquisition, you can't tell anyone, and you're not supposed to tell anybody. Anything could happen. They go through a bunch of due diligence, and we were also told, because it was a public company that, like, you typically don't tell anyone until you've signed or like one day before signing. And so that was really hard for me and John. Like, we're a very transparent culture.
0: Zina, I'm really curious. What does Synantics day-to-day look like now that you've been acquired by Spotify?
2: Yeah, so now we are called Speak, which is funny because we used to be called Speak AI before we were Synantics. So we're back to Speak. Majority of our team came with us. So we're all still working together and, and we still build amazing voice software. And you can probably hear this yourselves as you're in the in the US or if you come across DJ, Spotify's DJ that's just been pushed. So we were a part of pushing that. I get to do my favorite job still. So it's been really nice.
0: I was on holiday when DJ came out and I was incredibly envious that all my friends had it and I still can't use it in the UK. So I look forward to it being launched on on my app soon. Gotham, all M&As are not as smooth as the Symantec story and Xena's story. If someone is looking at this right now, especially the state of the downturn, what should people be considering? What kind of homework should they be doing before delving into the process?
1: I would say considering or at least having M&A on your mind as an option is really a bad idea. That is, you never know from where or when a buyer can emerge just as you know, we were talking about a minute ago. So it's always good to know where your head and heart is at the time. In terms of considering it seriously, though, there are a number of things to think about. For example, there's a matter of mission. Would selling your company help your company achieve your non-financial goals around product development or market penetration? There's also the team angle. How would your employees react and possibly embrace a deal? And finally, there's the personal angle. Are there life factors that make it a good time to sell? Have you been on this journey already longer than you expected? Are you excited about the prospect of having a larger platform for both your business and career? There are no right answers, but you should have clear thinking and answers to all these questions at the very least.
0: And when is it not a good idea? If you answer some of those and you're like, I still want to be part of this journey, when is it not for you?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you know some of the answers to those questions that would not be good answers. For example, you know, is your team going to reject the deal? Often a buyer. Uh, looks to a company for the technology, but also very much the team. And I think the team uh, aspect is in- important to a large degree in that they need to be bought into the deal, believe in the leader leadership of you, of course, but also the new company. And so that would be one area that you really have to confirm before you think it's a good idea. The opposite, of course, would not be good. In terms of the personal angle, it is one of those areas where are you ready to join a larger company? Some people... You know, have it in them or are wired to work in a larger company, some are not. And often the leadership is required to come on over for some period of time, not only to help with integration, but to make the deal and the business succeed in the larger entity. So if you're not up for that, that's probably going to set yourself and the deal up for failure down the road.
0: Zena, I wondered if you had some advice on that point about incorporating teams from a startup into a much bigger company.
2: I think for us, we did our best to come together and go through the process as much as possible as a team because everybody was getting used to the big culture from like 26 people to 10,000, having as many conversations as possible with each other, staying pretty close, noticing if there are transitions, like knowing that everyone's going through it together and that there are other teams within Spotify that also were very supportive. And yeah, the network is really nice, especially here in London for different teams who've gone through it. So I remember being introduced to other founders who'd gone through the process that also helped us learn about like what worked for them and what didn't. So for us, keeping open communication channels was like the most important thing that made a difference. And I could say we're pretty happy, which is nice.
0: That's really lovely to hear. And goes and mentioned there as well that one of the reasons people shouldn't do and a is you may want to stick to the journey. You may not be done being a founder on your own. How was it for you going through that process as a founder, not just as a team member?
2: I didn't expect to get acquired. So it was very much a shock and everything happened so fast because I thought I was just fundraising for Series A. So it did take time to sink in. I can't say that I was ready for this at all either. <laughs> But I think like when the opportunity comes, you just have to be open to it. And for us it was really exciting. So I pretty much welcome it open arms. So if we were Synantic, we got acquired when we were three and a half years old. And then four years in just shipping DJ to millions of users, that's pretty unheard of for a startup.
0: So Zina mentioned obviously that she was raising for her series A. How can other founders really fit their MA process and their timeline with their runway?
1: Yeah, this is a tricky one as it naturally depends on the scenario. Conservatively, I believe you should leave at least nine months for a deal process to take place. Obviously, in Sinantik's case, it could take less and certainly that's ideal, but you should at least be ready for a longer process, especially because there can be many starts and stops. Even if things don't fall apart, they rarely go smoothly without pumps. This would include being proactive in the market. So lining up potential buyers, negotiating with hopefully more than one at a time. And then finally getting to the legal close of the transaction. I've seen too many companies try to fight through, for example, a six-month runway situation, only to see later that they did not have leverage with any buyer at the end, or that they were frankly dead in the water anyway. While I would never tell a CEO to give up on executing 2 plan with nine months runway, they should definitely be getting the ball rolling on a sale, even if it's a plan B or C.
0: How do you know though that it's the right buyer? How do you figure that process out? It's like dating.
2: It's good to have a relationship beforehand. So like I knew that we had been speaking with a lot of different customers we had for quite a bit of time. So I guess Spotify wasn't exactly new to us, but their culture was also very similar to ours. So when it feels right, just like in dating, you go for
1: it. It certainly has to feel right. I would totally agree with Xena. But also if you want to be a little more objective about it, One is that there needs to be a cultural fit, especially at the leadership level. You know, keep in mind that you will be working with the leadership of the new company. Your team will be turning to you for guidance and motivation. So everything really has to line up there. I would say also on the customer side, it's equally important that your customers are bought in. Because one, they're going to be bringing value over to the buyer. And that's going to leave a lot to the success of the deal. But also you have your reputation. If you're selling a company, this probably isn't the end of your career. And you want to make sure that your customer relationships are both strong and that everybody gets value out of the acquisition. And then finally, the last thing is on the product side. You know, this maybe goes without saying, but there needs to be alignment, not just on where the products fit, but maybe how the products are developed, what uh, systems are in place and processes are there to continue development going forward, because that's going to be important not only for the strength of your product, but again, going back to the team, how your team feels about the entire deal in the first place.
0: Given the state of the market though, do founders really have the option of choosing the best buyer?
1: I think going back to what I said earlier, the number of options is certainly less than before. That said, the market has created different opportunities than were there in the past. So for example, you know, larger companies that previously couldn't compete with high-flying stock from unicorns have, you know, a more say in what they can look at and what they can go after in this market. So in some cases, the fit might even be better than before. Oftentimes, you know, maybe not in Sinantik's case, but in some cases, the investors have a lot of say in who you sell to, and they may want to sell to the flashiest shiny object at the moment, whereas nowadays, it's a little bit more of a rational discussion around which offer is higher. Is it in cash? Is it in liquid stock? So long way of saying, I think you have still a choice in buyers, but you know, just to be candid, the number of options that you have on the table overall has certainly gone down.
0: Do VCs have a preference between startups acquiring startups and big tech and corporates acquiring startups?
1: I think there's two dimensions to this. There's liquidity and then future value. All things being equal, cash is always king. It's been said for many years. And if you can get cash on the table, it's very predictable. It's generally coming from a place where a buyer has a large cash balance, so it doesn't impact them negatively going forward. If you're an investor, though, it's very different than for a founder and a team. The journey kind of ends at the time the deal is closed. And so for them, the only upside in a startup buying a startup or private stock deal, you know, you really have to believe in the buyer. And oftentimes there's reverse diligence that needs to happen. You need to understand what kind of stock you're getting going forward because you're probably going to be holding that for some period of time and going through market risks and cycles as well. So. Yes, I think investors almost always prefer cash, but sometimes that's not a realistic option and they need to understand what they're getting into and evaluate that on a case-by-case basis.
0: Zina, what were your learnings from being acquired by a big tech company? What I learned about big tech is, I guess, like when you have an aligned
2: vision and culture, like those two things are probably the most important thing you need to vet because that's going to be your new home. If you're trying to see out the future of your company, those two things matter the most if you're going to be able to do that. For instance, we did have conversations with other corporate development teams as Synantic who ran processes and culture and aligned vision was not there. And so with big tech, because it's called big tech for a reason, like they're huge. You know, it's not just like a couple thousand employees. It's like, it's a lot more than that. And so if you're thinking about being a part of an org that big, you should definitely make sure that fit is really right. I know the first few processes we went through, they didn't happen at the same time at all. Because when we went for series A, we we're like, definitely not looking to sell in any way. We were very happy going forward. But we went through processes probably a year before. And those were just like an insight of like how this stuff worked. And that that really pointed out not all cultures are the same. And even though these companies can get so big and make could thrive and financially they look great on paper, if it's not the right home, it makes a big difference. It's like, you know, when you're in the pandemic and you, and you find an apartment and you think, oh, you know, I only need this place to sleep. But then you realize you're going to be there for some time. You want to be able to enjoy it as well.
0: How do you figure out that culture fit?
2: you ask around but you also talk to them like you're going to be making a deal you should be speaking to them quite frequently and learning about them and them getting to learn about you like and there's meetings in person and loads of meetings all the time every day basically but then also like if you had a working relationship before that also indicates ideally you'd only go forward with a you know a really good working relationship Knowing that, oh, they've always done their side of things, we always do ours, and we're a great team. So that's definitely another way to look
0: at it. them if people were trying to find if they had culture fit with someone who was potentially going to acquire them, what tips do you have founders?
1: There are a couple of questions I would ask myself to determine the fit. I think one is, you know, where in the organization will you and your team fit? I think that's often fairly important in some of the deals I've done in the past. To be blunt, I think the company didn't know where the target exactly fit would it report to a certain SVP or a VP or this group or that group. And so I think knowing where you fit is really important, not just from a personality standpoint. You need to like your boss just like any job that you take, but also where in the organization you fit. What does that mean for your budget going forward? What does that mean for your champion and your ability to influence the new culture and tea? because that not only has an impact on culture but also your say and ability to continue the change that you were brought in to make in the first place. For example, if you're put, you know, layers below in an organization that you're meant to change, that's probably not going to work out for anybody. I think another piece of the puzzle is expectations financially. But what does the buyer truly expect from you coming in? If they're expecting You know, as Zena said, there's many conversations you're having. Oftentimes, one of those conversations is, what does a combined business look like together? Now, if they're expecting you to double for the next seven years and you think, well, that's probably not realistic, even inside a large company with puts and takes, you know, there's a mismatch there. So that's something you need to consider as well. And that'll have its impact on culture, right? Because they're going to be driving you in a way that maybe the team is not ready for or willing to accept. And then finally, the last piece I would just say is, this is a more tactical, but it's title. The founder coming in, you know, positioned within the company, both from a title or title description, I think is extremely important because it tells the rest of the company who you are, what your team represents, and where you fit in the organization.
0: That's all we have time for. Thank you to Zine and Gotham for all of their insights. If you want to hear more about what's unfolding in the world of European tech and startups, you can find all of our coverage on sifted.eu. If you want to hear more from me, you can sign up to the Startup Life newsletter. You can find all of the articles and facts mentioned in this episode in the podcast description. Thank you to EQT Ventures for sponsoring this podcast series. EQT Ventures is a diverse team of 40 plus ex-founders and operators and an AI bot And with the backing of EQT, one of the world's largest tech investors, they provide radical support and big picture early stage investments to founders that give their groundbreaking ideas a fast track to scale. A big thank you to our fabulous producer, Steph Bailey, and project manager, Tanya Maheshwari.